Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. It's hard to get people to, the reason the space that we're in is the way it is, is because people don't value this work. And if they don't value this work, they're not gonna pay for it. And that's, that's the challenging thing. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday, and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. I believe working in hospitality is a calling. I felt called to serve people and as a restaurateur, I've done just that. Chefs have a different calling, to feed and nourish the masses. Today we chat with Dan Gusti, the former executive chef of Noma. Dan walked away from the prestige of fine dining to serve a bigger purpose. Through his company Brigade, he's committed his life to turning school cafeterias across America into scratch kitchens led by seasoned chefs. We begin today's conversation back in 2015 when Dan took the entrepreneurial leap. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny in retrospect, I think I think a big part of it too is that I, I never considered myself the most uh, talented person. And I think getting to the place where I was at Noma was a lot about just working really hard, um, having the right personality to be a leader in a space like that. And I guess for me, it was like, I felt so fortunate for that opportunity and to be able to do it that I also, and, and like, I almost felt like I didn't deserve it to a certain extent, but I think it was also easier for me to leave it in a certain way where like, I knew I had accomplished a lot. I knew I was doing something special, but I guess I always thought in my mind because of the way I feel about myself that, you know, it, it could have, it could have been someone else who had that job. I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. I worked very hard and there was no question that I probably could have done whatever I wanted to do in terms of, you know, if I wanted to open a restaurant or something like that, but it really was just a confidence thing. And, you know, I just, I had a lot of confidence in myself and I also didn't take myself too seriously. I think if you get to a place like that, where you're like the head chef of this restaurant, like Noma, you might take yourself too seriously to the extent that you can't depart that lifestyle. Like, man, I can't leave this track. That would be crazy because I've gotten to this point. And I guess I just never took it that seriously in the sense, like I've always taken my work extremely seriously, but in terms of myself and who I am, I mean, there was a point I'll tell you where I literally, before I thought about the school food thing, 
and I always, I tell this story sometimes to friends and it's funny because I think it's, it's, they feel the pressure to tell me that I'm funny, but there was a small moment where I'm like, maybe I always had a lot of admiration for comedians, stand up comedians. And there was a mm-hmm. short time where I was like, maybe I'll just leave cooking and, and go to, go to, you know, like stand up comedy school in LA and just give it a shot. Like, I think it was just this idea that my whole life, it was all about this track and everybody always talks to how old are you and what have you accomplished? And then I was like 31, I guess. And I had done this and I was like, well, that was great. But what's, you know, what's next. And I guess I just didn't value it as much as maybe like, even when I look back at it now, I'm like, I was the head chef of Noma. What do I have to show for it? Yeah. None, none of it was mine. It wasn't mine. Right. <laughs> I have nothing to show for it outside of, you know, being able to tell people that I did that. And it's like, for me, you know, that's Rene Redzepi's restaurant. That is his restaurant. That's his project. I was one of many people who worked there. Did I contribute to it? Sure, I contributed to it. But I have nothing to show for it, you know, and I feel like it's a bit odd for me to take credit for it. And I think all of these things combined made it, you know, because people are like, it must have been such a hard decision for you to to think beyond it. It just, it, it, quite frankly, it wasn't. It really wasn't. Was there any fear involved? I've always been too stupid to be scared or too ignorant. (laughs) Truly. Right. I've always just taken the lead. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Was there any fear for you? Well, it's funny because in my, in my personal life as a person, I'm, I'm the most like conservative guy. Like I don't break rules. I, you know, even when I drive, I drive the speed limit. Like (laughs) I'm like so worried about everything, concerned about everything. But when it's come to my career, it's happened three times. One time when I was younger, uh, I got a job to work in Las Vegas in 2008 when things started to like pop up there and there was a hiring freeze after they hired me. I moved there anyway. I didn't have a job, found a job, started working there. And then when I left to go to Noma, same thing. I worked there. I went there without a paying job. And then when I left Noma, it was like, for me, I guess the career thing, it just seems like it has to happen, I guess. Like for me, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. I was not afraid um, at all. I, I think it's just a matter of like, I, I know it's like a gut feeling. Like if I keep doing this, I'm not going to be happy. And I need to do this regardless of what happens. Like, I, like, for example, when I went to Noma, there was no promise of a paying job. I could have went there for two months and then had to come back, but it still seemed like the right thing to do. Even if that was the risk, like it, it just seemed like the right thing to do. So no, I don't think I was ever afraid. I don't think I really was ever afraid. I think maybe by personality, if I know I'm going to jump into something new, it's like, you know, this idea of like just going after it kicks in and like fear is not really there anymore. Well, and then let, let's jump into school lunches. It, I mean, yeah. to me, we don't know each other well. So it seems <laughs> at a left field. Was this something like it's 2002 and you're, you're complaining about school lunches or like, how did you, how did you know that this was the itch you wanted to scratch? Yeah, it's funny because of course a question, um, you know, I've talked about with friends and family before. It's like, oh, what was school lunch like for you? And I was like, Strangely enough, you know, when I graduated in high school, it was 2002, and I was in high school, I worked a full-time job cooking. So food was important to me. But in high school, I don't even remember lunch. I literally don't remember it as a time that was associated with food. I don't remember bringing lunch to school. I don't remember eating school food. So I think that's also indicative to 
how I thought of school lunch, but literally the idea of school and food was not something that went together. When I decided I want to move on from Noma, the thing I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to cook for a lot of people. I wanted to feed a lot of people. But I think more importantly, and I think this is something a lot of people don't think about, is getting to cook for, because if you really want to affect someone's life through food, you got to feed them often. Like, obviously, if you have a family and you feed your family, you have the ability to really impact the way they eat. But in a restaurant, unless you're really, really kind of a local, accessible restaurant, community restaurant, I mean, even in that sense, you're not seeing people a lot. Right. You know, maybe, maybe once every few weeks, maybe once a month, you know, surely not in a place like Noma. So the idea of being able to cook for people every single day is a very unique opportunity that really, really only exists kind of, it's either in your home or in an institution. Right. So that's where it all started. It was like institutional food is where it's at. Um, and really it started with school food. For me, the interest of working in an institution like a school, it also is the most regimented uh, institutional feeding program with the most rules and regulations, which to me really resonated with me. I, I've never been the most creative person. Um, so for me, seeing a lot of rules and parameters that are given to you, like this is what you have to follow. I really liked that. And I, I take mm -hmm. it as a challenge. Um, but yeah, you know, people are always asking me, do you have kids yourself? Do you have, no, I mean, it's a problem. And I think I look at things in priorities. And for me, the idea of going back to the United States and opening another restaurant, it, I don't know. It seemed like my, like, it didn't seem like it made much sense. There's a lot of good restaurants, a lot of great restaurants. Like, do I need to, make another great restaurant no but we do have a lot of problems that surround that are surrounded food so i was like why don't i get involved in that and that's kind of again school food is such like a politicized thing that it's hard to ignore so it kind of jumped out as like the front runner of like this is what i should get involved in well and what was the problem you were looking to solve um i i think initially it's feeding people feeding people who need it um, not feeding people who, I mean, and feeding, I think in itself is a word that you would never really use and say a restaurant. And in fact, feeding has a very negative connotation, like you're feeding animals or something like that. But feeding to me is more of like providing food to someone who's dependent on it, who needs it. Um, and that's how I think, I think feeding is a great word. You're feeding someone, you're taking care of them, you're nourishing them through food, that there are just a lot of people who depend on institutional meals, um, whether they're students in schools, whether they're sick people in hospitals, whether they're seniors in senior centers, or even incarcerated people in prisons, a lot of people who depend on these meals. And, and those meals are not providing them with what they need, um, whether because the food is not tasty and there's not much thought into it. So that's really the problem that that is existing now where you know, there's all these programs out there that are that are federally reimbursed. There's a budget for it. Um, so we should be taking advantage of that budget that if you mm -hmm. serve a meal, um, you get money back for it. But the food that's being served is not great. Therefore, people choose not to eat it. That's a problem. Um, and beyond that, where's it, there's so many implications within these programs. Like if if you start making decisions as to where the food is being purchased from for an institutional food service program. For example, New York City public school food serves 1 million meals a day. It's the second largest provider of food in the United States after all, all the armed forces combined. So if they choose to say like, oh, we're going to source chicken from here, or we're going to decide to source fresh carrots versus frozen carrots, a lot of implications to this. So it's, it's, 
they're big food systems and there's a lot of impact that can happen, not just for the individual people who are participating in these programs, but also the food systems at large um, would change dramatically if those systems changed. And so you see the problem and you decide to solve it by starting Brigade. And one entrepreneur to another, that... (laughs) The hardest part of starting is getting started, right? Yeah. And it's, it's trying to figure out where to start. So you've perceived the problem. No shit. Everybody sees that school lunches are an issue. You're going to fix it. And step one was what? Well, basically, I before I even left Noma, I incorporated. I had a company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't mean much. I mean, these days, I, think, I don't think most people they don't realize that you can literally just go online and start a company officially. And um, I knew I started a company and I knew that I wanted to put chefs in schools. That's all I knew when I returned to the United States. um, Previous, just basically the last week I was at Noma, there was a Washington post article came out and it said, this guy from Noma is going to get into school food. I didn't really know what I wanted to do again. Like I said, I didn't know how the model would work. This was the most challenging thing. And we're literally just figuring it out four years later you know, starting a business is one thing, starting a business in a space that there's not really many businesses, mostly it's nonprofit organizations that do this work philanthropically. So I, I'm a firm believer that uh, for these types of initiatives to really gain steam and be sustainable, they should be done by for-profit companies and not be supported by philanthropy. So this is something I've stood by since the beginning. So I made the conscious decision for it to be a for-profit company. Some people are always like, oh, it's a great nonprofit. You have them. It's not a nonprofit. So started the company, knew I wanted to put chefs in schools, visited all all these places across the country after this Washington Post article came out. I visited schools, I visited organizations, parents, all these things. And finally found a school district in New London, Connecticut, this tiny small town equidistant between New York and Boston, met with the superintendent. He seemed like the kind of guy who could actually make this happen, decided that I wanted to do it there. And really with him and his team, figured out how it would make sense to engage with a school district. So when I first came into it, I had all these ideas of this is how we're going to do it. And they're like, no, no, like we're not going to work with you like that. Mm -hmm. And the superintendent, he was so amazing in the sense that he was always thinking like, if you go to another school district, this is how it's going to be. He was always trying to help me think beyond that school district there. And, and we developed the initial model, just working with them just, and, and it, you know, we hired chefs and the chefs were employees of the school district. So I was able, essentially started the company with no money. Mm-hmm. Um, no one invested in the company. I didn't ask for investment. I didn't pay myself. And I was able to hire chefs to start who worked for the school district. And literally, I hired two chefs. Uh, they worked for the school district. With them, we developed menus. And that following school year, um, so I came back in January of 2016 in September of 2016, on the first day of school, we were cooking in two schools. And that's how it started. We had no idea what we were doing. We'd never, I'd never cooked in a school before, but we developed menus that fit the nutritional guidelines. We worked with their, their food service team. We trained them. I mean, the whole point of Brigade is you're just applying what you would know in any food service environment into a different type of kitchen. So those things come naturally. You know, there's a lot of bumps in the road in terms of really understanding how to properly assimilate within a different group of people who don't know who you are and you're coming from an outside town. But in terms of like, it's working in a kitchen, it's organizing. If you took all the basics of working in a professional kitchen, 
a lot of those things are missing in some of these institutional kitchens. So just applying those, getting kitchens organized, training people how to do simple tasks, getting kitchens clean, that came easy to us. The hard part was kind of navigating, you know, more of the nuanced things of the school lunch program. But a big part of it too was, and it still is, is the business itself, is the entrepreneurial aspect of making, making people value this work and turning it into an actual business. And it's, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I feel like we've figured it out even now. It's hard to get people to, the reason the space that we're in is the way it is, is because people don't value this work. And if they don't value this work, they're not going to pay for it, you know? And that's, that's the challenging thing. And has the vision pivoted since the day you started the project? Day one, you thought it was going to be one thing and no different than children or restaurants or anything businesses have a tendency to tell you what they're going to be as they grow up right for sure it's it's definitely changed and i think um the the i think the major changes from day one it was like this is what we think school food should look like this is the food you should serve this is the menu you should have this is what your kitchen should look like and our idea is we were going to basically go from school to school school district to school district and transform those programs into that vision Mm-hmm. Um, only to realize that that's not realistic at all. And also that success in one place is extremely different from success in another place. And it doesn't make sense to go from place to place and say that this is what success looks like everywhere. Um, and that, that's probably been the biggest change where, you know, you start a business and especially these days where there's so many businesses that have these like super simple models and they're so profitable and so game changing that you want to do the same thing. You know, you want to create this model that like, and and I think the way my brain works as well, I want things to be just like super cut and dry, clean, Mm -hmm. like one size fits all kind of situation. And it's just not that. Like I would say that this space is about as complicated as it gets. So really now it's more, and and also too, that, that there's a bit of pretension to that as well. And I think there's no question. That's a whole nother conversation of the idea of coming you know, as a professional chef from a place like Noma and thinking that you're just going to get into this and figure it out. Like I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I still think I was naive about a lot of things. And we thought we were just going to go in and apply certain things and it was just going to work out. So now it's very much about going into these programs, seeing where they're at, talking to them, really collaborating with them, understanding what, what are your goals? What have you tried? What haven't you tried? Where do you want to go with this? And then help them get there. That's what we do now. And that looks different from place to place, you know, in one place it's consulting in one place it's on the ground training in one place. It's literally putting a chef there perpetually. So, you know, it's being open-minded to a variety of things. And you know what, maybe at some point it will come back together and focus into one place. But right now I think, um, because we are a mission driven company, you know, it's one of these things where like, we're not making money, we're losing money. And it's so funny to me because my metric for success on a daily basis is, are we making the impact that I want to make? And it's crazy to me to think that we will get to the point where not only are we making impact, but we have a healthy business that can sustain Mm -hmm. itself. And that's just, you know, it's difficult. I think, I think all the time, like if I wanted to just have a business that was there to just make money, if I had no passion, like how much easier it'd be. Now, I don't think there's that many businesses out there like that. I think if you have a restaurant, you can be, you know, you have a passion. You're trying to provide a certain type of food and a certain type of service and a certain type of environment. So you're not just going to deviate from that just to make money. I mean, sure, some people will, but it's, it's hard to do exactly what you want and make money. And that's, 
you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be mission driven. And like I said, working in a space that, um, and I think that's another thing that we've had to kind of change in terms of, or hold the line, I guess I should say. I mean, you get to this point where you're, you're chasing business a bit because you see that the space maybe there's the market that you thought was there isn't necessarily there. Right. And you start chasing that. So you start, okay, we're going to make our services a little cheaper. We're going to make our services a little simpler, but now we're not making as much impact as we wanted to make. And where do you draw that line? It's like figuring out like, we're going to make things a little cheaper. The impact might not be exactly where we want it, but because it's a little cheaper, we might be able to build up to where we want to go. Um, I think for me, especially coming from a place like Noma, where if you want to do something, you just do it. There's mm-hmm. more like, we're going to work up to this. It's like, we're going to do this tomorrow. Like we want to, we want to execute this tomorrow. It's going to happen. There's no build up to it. And that's just not realistic. And when you start a small business, the idea of like, you're not going to get, you got to be, you have some kind of patience and work up to something. I mean, sure. There are companies that, you know, just explode overnight, but I think being patient and working up to something to where you want to go is important. And I'm not a patient person. And I think that's been a real lesson for me. Well, there, there are so few truly overnight successes, you know, I interviewed uh, Johnny Ray's own for the show, right? Helen Ray's overnight success. If you forget about the years he spent in a food truck, hawking fried chicken and, and all of, all of the effort that went into, to building the brand that is Helen Ray's, you know, and, and at least in the early stages of entrepreneurship, it's really no different than the early stages of parenthood in the way that it's a sea of compromises. Sure. And there's so promises that you've made yourself that you end up breaking along the way in an effort right. to grow and scale and evolve into something that looks less like what you want and more like what the market needs, right? Sure. That's it. And I think that's, that's exactly it. And I think that's the real challenge. And like, where do you, again, where do you draw the line? And where do you say, you know what, like, you know, the market, the market's not where we want it to be, but you know, and then part of what we're doing simultaneously is kind of creating the market for it, the interest mm-hmm. for it, because it's not really there, but it is there. Like, you know, if you ask 10 parents out there, if they think the food in the schools where their kids go should be better, nine of them at least, if not all 10, will say, yes, it needs to be better. You could go to school boards. You could go to superintendents. They will all say, yes, it needs to be better. So the, the interest, the desire, the appetite is there. But then when, when, the, when the, you know, the rubber hits the road in terms of money and where money is going to be spent, that's the problem. And again, where do, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you wait it out? Do you do you keep pushing and it's like a slow growth and then that thing will get there? Or do you make changes quickly so you're in a good place, you have a healthy business and then look to build to get to that place? I mean, we've, we've done the former where we've very, very slow growth and just kind of like we're seeing it, we're seeing glimpses here and there. Like in, and you can see on the horizon, there's a couple chances like where it, it might just take that one school district where it's 200 schools and they say, let's do it. Mm -hmm. That gets you over the hump, but you're also, you're in the wings, you're waiting. And that's, that's a dangerous place to be, especially now with what's happening in our work, you know, or any food service for that matter, but in schools, like no school right now is talking about, you know, making their food service better. Schools are not thinking about that now. Of course they're not, they have much, much graver priorities to think about. So, you know, waiting in the wings like that at, at times seems a little naive, 
Like we need to be a bit more aggressive to find other avenues. And we've started to look at, and that's kind of what we're doing now. Like we're not taking our eye off the main prize, which is really to do exactly what we've always set out to do, maybe in a slightly different way, but achieve what we want to achieve. But now finding different avenues, like for example, we started, we started doing webinars that have really caught a lot of people's attention where we know we can't get to everyone in the work we do, but there's people on in Seattle who want to do the same thing we do that we're never going to work with, but we can tell them everything we know. Mm-hmm. And it's actually become a, a source of revenue and simultaneously making impact in that we feel like we can share information to people that we otherwise wouldn't be able to through our work in person. So, you know, I think it's for us, it's become that balance. And then in the end, like I'm a guy who went to culinary school, you know, am I, am I a pretty smart guy? Yeah, sure. I'm a, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I, I do, I do not have a business background. <laughs> you know, I went to two years of culinary school, just made plenty of mistakes and trusting, you know, you have to trust a lawyer. You have to trust an accountant. You have to trust an insurance agent. You know, these are things that, yes, you can look into them yourselves. You can have a certain level of understanding and and surely you should. But at some point you do to put your trust in some of these other folks to help you navigate some of these things, man, it's, it's tough and you're still dealing. I mean, four years into it, that's a lot of what you deal with, you know? And I think that's something that I like it and I don't mind doing it, but I'm not very good at it. Like, it's not that easy for me. Like some things come easy to me. This does not come that easy to me. Have you built up a team around you? I have a team, but my team is, is really, um, you know, like you do in a small business, you know, you, you really, you're lean, you're very lean. And really my team is, I have one person who is more of more, I don't want to say administrative because I feel like everyone on our team has multiple hats. I do a lot of the administrative work myself. And then we have one person who's doing more. She, she's not a chef. I guess I should say the rest of them are chefs. We have five chefs and myself and then an administrative person. Uh, the way we work is interesting because although our team is super small from the beginning, and this is how it was designed is that if we put a chef in a place, they might actually be overseeing 60, 70, 80 people. Right. None of them work for us. Contractually, they don't work for us, but contractually, they are to listen to kind of what we're doing. So we have a small team, but we can oversee lots of people, which I've been happy with. The other thing is we're a small team that I've never felt the need to have an office. We don't have an office um, because people are working in schools. It's primarily chefs. And we have people in different states. You know, we're in New York, we're in Connecticut, we're in Virginia right now looking to go to Colorado. So you have people in different states all these things make for you have a tiny business that's spread out with people in different places. Um, and the combination of trying to create autonomy, because the way I look at it is like, if we put a chef in Richmond, that chef, that's their chef. He's there and he's like doing his thing and he's taking guidance and he's connected to us. But at the same time, like that's his project. How do you manage that giving people autonomy, but at the same time, keeping things reined in. I mean, I, I would say, you know, so we have a team, but it's a small team and we don't have people representing, like we, we can't afford to have someone who's just a fine, like an accountant or a financial person. I mean, right. we outsource these smaller services. It's funny because when I first started the company, I had a lot of conversations with like people who just graduated from Stanford MBA and this and that. None of them had ever started a business, but they went to business school, smart right. people. And they're like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm like, I, I mean, I was like, I don't, I didn't go to business school, but like, I don't know, like, unless I'm just going to raise millions of dollars just to do it. 
um, and, and never be able to pay it back. Like, I don't know how you pay for all these people. Like, oh, I'm going to hire a graphic designer. Like, you're going to hire someone to work for you who's just a graphic designer? Like, what? So that's been such an interesting thing, like figuring out what work you can outsource, what should you do in-house? Um, you know, that's such an interesting balance I have found that I think we went the wrong way initially where we were trying to do too much in-house. And it's like, it doesn't make sense to have someone doing this in-house, outsource it, and it, you know, and, and these are the things again that there's there's people out there clearly who these decisions come so naturally to them and make a lot of sense. But if if you're someone without that experience, um, you know, it, it, it takes a few mistakes, and, and ultimately a mistake in these businesses costs money, and there's not much money to go around. So it's tough. For sure. In reading so many articles about you and in in following your career the way I have. What I see when I look at, let's say, the last four years, is that this went from being a business model to a movement, right? That, that it's that it's actually an ideology that you're preaching, and that ideology is paired with an action plan, right? Which right actually makes it worth doing. Yeah, and I but I and I think that's where it becomes difficult, and that's where it's been interesting. Like, what's been cool with my team is most of them have worked for me since pretty much the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. Like if I ever kind of, maybe I'm doubting myself or I'm doubting kind of where we're going, they, we can always balance each other out and they don't feel, they feel like they can speak up. And I think it's tough sometimes because if things are a movement and it's this thing you're motivated to achieve, you can lose track of the business part of it. And they they're they're dependent on each other obviously we don't have the you know you that's not going to be the conversation you want to have with everybody is like well, we have this business we need to make x amount of money but right that's what supports our work and if we don't have the business we can't do what we've said we're going to do so you know it, it's been an interesting road in the sense that there there are a lot of people who again they're like oh we're really interested in brigade you know the nonprofit, and you're like well, we are a for-profit company and for some people that rubs them the wrong way um, and it's so strange to me. I don't really understand that, but the, the idea of profiting, if you will, off of these kinds of services seems odd to people. And it's like, first of all, you know, again, we don't make any money now, but even if we were making money, it's not like we're going to be, you know, we're not going to be Amazon, you know, the market's just not there for something like that. Um, but beyond that, like, again, like I said, I think what people don't understand is like, for example, right now, all the things that are happening in food through philanthropy, like all these meals that are being paid for millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that have been donated to make meals to go to people. I mean, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. But there's all these federally funded feeding programs that the budget's there already. The money's literally in a bank account. And, you know, your dollar going to one of those programs just goes that much further. Right. So investing in these programs makes a lot of sense. And if that means, for example, paying a company like ours to go into a school district of 100 schools to change the way they make food for kids, uh, you know, you might in 100 schools, you might be feeding 50, 60,000 kids a day. And you're going to spend a very small amount of money in, 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 in kind of in comparison to say spending like paying for these meals individually. It's just such a good investment and it makes sense. But I, but I guess that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build a market for that. And I think, like I said, the movement, you get caught up with trying to just get people to care about this. And I guess it's a, it's a hard place to be when, you're, when you have to build the interest for it 
and you have a business that's waiting for that interest to build right. so they can get paid. It's kind of a, it's kind of a shitty place to be, to be honest with you. It's like, <laughs> you're kind of like, Oh, you should really be interested in this. It's important. And just so you know, we're here, we actually do that work. If you are interested in it, uh, you, you, you catch yourself doing a lot of that, which then, you know, you kind of feel like a scumbag because people then get it mistaken. Like they, they, they think you're just trying to promote this work because you have a business that will profit off of that work. Like that's the reason it's like, no, it's the other way around. We really believe in this work. And the, because we really believe in it, we started a company that supports this work, you know? So, but people can get it mixed up, you know, let's get high level for a minute. Yeah. In the early days of your career, how did you define your role as a chef and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, that's a great, that's such a great, I love that question because I think, it's changed so much for me personally. I get a kick. I often do it because I was the head chef of this restaurant, 1789 in Washington when I was like 24. And I love reading interviews from when I was there. Cause I was such like a <laughs> piece of shit, like cocky, like not a good chef. I wasn't a good chef. I mean, I look at like menus and stuff I wrote too. And the food I made was not good, but it's really interesting to read interviews and how I spoke about myself or my philosophy and why I was doing what I was doing. And I think for me, the role of a chef was just this, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think I've ever completely, was ever completely away from this idea of like taking care of people. But I will say like, if I think of my time at 1789, I never went into the dining room, never. So my contact with customers was like super limited. And in my thinking on this, and I say it all the time that in a restaurant, you cook for yourself. I don't care what anyone says. Like, there's not many places I've been, whether actually eating there or worked there, where I really felt like a, everyone in that place was like, man, we got to take care of guest so-and-so at table seven. Like, it's just really important. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're so-and-so young cook who's 20 years old at, you know, three Michelin star restaurant in New York City, you're just doing your thing so you can get to the next three Michelin star restaurant and get to the next one. And so you can be successful so you can have your own place and do whatever you want to do. Right. That's ultimately what you're trying to get to. I feel like most chefs, that's what you're trying to get to. You are trying to get to the level where you can literally do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I ask people all the time, I use social media for this. I'm always interested about it. Like, do you cook for yourself or do you cook for your guests? And so many people, and I don't know if they understand where I'm coming from, because if they're just reading this, it's hard to guess my tone. But so many people say, well, I, ha I have to cook for my guests. I have to cook for my guests. I can't do exactly what I want. And it's so funny to me. It's like, that's what it's come to. Like success is being able to do whatever you want. Like Noma, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll fly across the world to eat there and we'll eat exactly what you want to feed us with no choices and no options. That's success for so many people. And that's how I used to think of food. Like, I remember when I first started 1789, that restaurant had been there for 50 years. They served, they were famous for rack of lamb, Caesar salad, and creme brulee. That type of restaurant. All the politicians would eat there. The presidents would eat there. It was a successful restaurant. Mm -hmm. I took all of those things off the menu. I was 24. I took them all <laughs> off the menu. I'm like, Caesar salad, rack of lamb, creme brulee. Like, I had just been in Las Vegas. I worked at Guy Savoie. It was two Michelin star restaurant. Like, to, again, I was a terrible chef. I was not like, I was, when I first started at 17, I think I was literally still 23. And I took all these things off the menu. 
And they let me do it. I don't know why they let me do it. They shouldn't mm-hmm. have let me do it. And it was this idea again of like, okay, people, like, let me just, let me, let me enlighten you here. Like, it's such a pretentious attitude to have. So for me, the role of a chef then was really about like, it was more about, you know, I am a professional. I understand food. I, I am going to introduce you to things you've never seen before. And, 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 and I think a lot of people, that's what they feel. If, you know, if you're not a chef, that's what they want a chef to be too. Like this creative, an artist, someone who can introduce them to new things and cook mm-hmm. them flavors they've never had before. Uh, for me, you know, now it's such a different thing. Like, I think, again, you can cook for yourself or you can cook for other people. And don't, don't get me wrong, like working in institutions has definitely like forced me to the idea of cooking for other people. It's not about me. But it's still this idea, like even now, like because of my schedule or even during this pandemic, like if you cook for somebody else, like it just doesn't matter what you think of the food. It just doesn't matter. All that matters is what they think of it. Are they happy? Have you made something that they enjoy? So for me now, the role of the chef is really to first, you know, it, it is hospitality. And I think people lose sight of hospitality. First, it is like, who are you? Where are you at? What do you like to eat? What, what don't you like to eat? How can, you know, and, and then let's start, let's start there. Let's make you feel comfortable. And then let's introduce you to new things if you're up for it. Not the other way around. And I think so the chefs should really be the ones that are like, you know, bringing people together, you know, making them feel comfortable. And, and, then, and then kind of being there to be the ones that can say, hey, like, this is maybe something you should think about, or this is a food part of the food system you should think about. But quite frankly, in terms of the role of the chef, I don't think a lot of chefs are anywhere close to the capability or have it in them to go anywhere far beyond the bubble that they live in, which is the restaurants that they run. I just don't think Mm -hmm. they're there. You know, the idea of looking at looking beyond what they do. Um, Sure. Now a lot of chefs are looking at it, but I think it's again, if your mentality towards food is that, you know, you look at the values and the standards, which you've come to kind of respect and live by, if you can't detach yourself from those to make people feel more comfortable about their food choices and the way they live their life, if you can't do that, then you have no place beyond your bubble, like stay in your bubble, just cook for the people that come to your restaurant. That's where you belong because you know, it's, it's so often that I, I hear chefs talking about things and they just can't break themselves away from, even if they're cooking at home for people or in an informal setting or they're, they're in an informal conversation. It's like the idea of saying something that's not in line with, like, for example, in schools, when we first started in schools, I took peanut butter and jelly sandwiches off the menu. Big mistake because I was like, man, we have chefs in schools. We should be, you know, we're preparing these nicer meals. Kids shouldn't use this as a crutch. And then we'd have kids that would choose not to eat because there was nothing that made them feel comfortable. We put them back on. But the story I want to tell is we were hiring, we had a few cooks, kids from culinary school who wanted to work for brigade. They were not chefs yet, but we hired them literally as cafeteria workers. And you'd have them in these school kitchens and they'd be making sandwiches like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches next to, you know, a woman who's been there for 30 years. And they were terrible at making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It was this (laughs) idea of like, it was below them. They're like, ah, like, this is like, whatever, like, this is below me. Like, I'm not. So again, it's this idea of like, or for example, when I told people that I was doing what I was doing, they have this certain expectation as to what it was. They're like, yeah, but 
like even the peanut butter and jelly thing, they're like, yeah, but peanut butter and jelly is so good and it's important. They're like, I'm sure you're using the best peanut butters out there as well. I'm like, we're not. We're actually using one of the lowest quality peanut butters you can buy because we have 60 cents to make the sandwich. Like it's like oh certain, certain people cannot break out of this. Like they can't look at a situation and be like, wow, you only have a dollar to feed kids. So I understand that this is what's realistic. It's like, no, I, I'm like, it's like one track mind. So I just think chefs need to be way more open-minded and it's a tough place to balance. In my own head, I know the highest standard that's out there. I've seen it. I've lived it. I've lived the highest standard that exists in food, you know, people being neurotic about things, but I've managed to be able to break myself away from it. And I think it's because what I told you when we first started talking, I've just never been the most talented person. I've never been the best person that there was there. I was in the presence of it and I happened to run the restaurant when I was there. But when I'm at home, I can make something very simple for myself and not think too much of it and not take myself too seriously. And I think chefs have been propped up to a level now for good or for bad, you know, where they, they do take themselves really, really seriously. And it's kind of funny to me, you know, it's like you run a restaurant, like give it a break. You literally run a restaurant, like one restaurant. That's what you do. You're in charge of a restaurant. Like, not knocking people who run restaurants at all, but like, I've never taken myself that seriously. And, and like you run a restaurant. So what makes you better than the person next to you? You know, yes, you've gotten accolades and things like that, but that's a whole nother conversation for itself. What do I, what, do any, what does any of that stuff mean anyway? It is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I do like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Yeah. Any advice, any words of encouragement that you want to share? Yeah, I think, I think restaurants, you know, restaurants in general are like, they're such special, they can be such special places. And people who work in restaurants, whether you are a chef, whether you work in the front of the house, I mean, people look to you, people see you, people talk to you. It's such a, it's, it's a career that's such, or a group of people that's such in the spotlight. And I just think now more than ever, and I think this is going around right now, of course, and I, I'm a little skeptical of it where people you see restaurants starting to make this move to maybe help feed the community or get involved. And I just have this feeling that as soon as things do clear up with what's happening, that a lot of people will just go back to doing their thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know restaurants just running a restaurant is going to take, you know, it takes so much time, but I just think restaurants have such an opportunity to be involved in so many more things. And it might even be just one initiative, getting involved with the local school or getting involved with this. But I just think for the sake of the industry, the sake of the people, maybe even more so, the sake of the people who work in those restaurants, to be involved in more and more than just happens within the four walls of their restaurant. I just think that is a starting point. I mean, obviously, this pandemic has showed that the restaurant industry is not where it needs to be for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of problems. And I just think finding other ways to enrich the folks that work in these restaurants, thinking beyond what they're doing within just those restaurants. I think it goes a long way, not just for the restaurants themselves, not just for the people, but for the industry as well, and for all these communities. And I just think there's too few restaurants and too few people who work in restaurants who really do seriously consider their role within a community. I I just, and people who can feed people, if you can cook, if you know how to serve people, you are the people who should take leadership in this way. And I just, I think it's the time to do it. If there, if there was ever a time to do it, it's, it's coming out of this. 
That's Dan Gusty. For more on Brigade, go to chefsbrigade.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.